Hello, hello, and welcome to the Station Tapes on 21 Soul. I'm your host, Lewis Marks, and on this podcast, I share intimate interviews with some of the best musicians in the world. In my role at Rope Oak, I get to interview each artist as we prepare for the release of their latest record. I want to get the backstory, a sense of their intent and motivation around their new release. I've found that given the opportunity, in a relaxed setting, they feel free to open up about musicianship, life, and the challenges of being a professional musician. This week on the show, bassist and composer Fima Efren, a go-to in many worlds. Fima's credits cut across styles, from his work with Natalie Merchant to the Screaming Headless Torsos, from John Zorn to Nate Smith. It was on Nate's Grammy-nominated Kinfolk record that Fima made his Rope It Oak debut, and now he's back with a full-length record via Modern Icon Recordings. Songs from the Tree will be released worldwide on October 26, 2018, and it features Nate Smith, Chris Potter, Adam Rogers, Kevin Hayes, David Torn, and Adrian Harpin. There we go. Okay. We're here for the 21 Soul Station Tapes with another special guest, Mr. Fema Efren. Fema, welcome. Hi. Hello. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's such an honor to speak with you. Uh, I'm really happy that you came down and visited us a few weeks ago. Uh, and I have uh, plenty of questions. I want to. I just want to get the want to get the FEMA Efren story here. Um, the first question I have is: uh, Born in London? Yes. Uh, can you? How, how does that happen? Are you are you an English citizen, a U.S. citizen, or both? I'm actually still an English citizen, and I have a green card, so I kind of have the you know best of both worlds. Although I'm kind of thinking about uh, you know getting my U.S. passport after all these years because. I've just been lazy. Uh, gotcha. Gotcha. Well, th- these are the times to pay attention to those things. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. Um, so, so, but, but, but how, you know, tell me about your folks. Um, were they musicians? Uh, why, why in London? Um, well, my dad, um, he was involved in music. We, we, we moved to New York when I was three and uh, my parents were both very young. My mom was 18 when, when I was born. My dad was 21. So, and this was the 60s. So it was, you know, uh, I guess, you know, sort of the, the hippie, the hippie movement was happening and my dad kind of was involved in that. And, and uh, he ended up having a loft. Well, actually quite a few different lofts, but there was, there was one sort of legendary loft off of Union Square where guys would come and jam and play like basically sort of freeform jazz music to uh, to all hours of the, the night and drive the neighbors completely crazy. But um, and and so this is when you're when you're a young boy, you're you're seeing and hearing all this? Yeah, I was awesome. you know, seven, six, seven, eight and uh, and and you know my, my dad wasn't really like a formally trained musician or anything. He was more kind of like a freeform jazz improviser you might say and uh, my mom is an artist so I was kind of raised in like this sort of pretty artistic environment um, from and, and I was exposed to a lot of different you know kinds of music and art from from quite a young age so were you were you aware at the time growing up that that you're you're living the hippest life <laughs> that an American child can be living right now new york city brownstone loft apartments you know well i mean you know there was a, there was there was the good and the bad you know i mean my 
my dad had some drug problems, um, as a lot of people did back in, in, in those days. And it, uh, you know, kind of took a little bit of a toll on him. He's still, he's still around. He's, he, he moved to, to Scotland. Now he's back in, in the UK and, uh, you know, he's been sober for quite, a, you know, I don't know, 30, 30 odd years or more now. I see. So he, you know, um, but it was an interesting time. I mean, there were, you know, even as a young kid, I mean, um, there were some inter- a lot of interesting people that were kind of floating around. Uh, for instance, my dad was was friends with Jimi Hendrix. Wow. So Jimi Hendrix was like kind of, you know, around at the loft and would come and play and, and, uh, and lots of people, you know, like a lot of sort of more avant-garde kind of people like Marion Brown, um, I think Ornette might have come by a few times, and David Eisenstein, different, you know, sort of wild musicians and stuff. So I wasn't really that aware of. But the funny story, I think there's a there was a funny story where you know they would have like these um, massive jam sessions at the at the house that would go all night, and I'd be sleeping. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the story was like you know when the music stopped, that's when I would wake up. they'd be like you know 15 guys like playing their you know playing as loud as they possibly could totally free form and then as soon as the music stopped that's when i would wake up so (laughs) kept keep playing so 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 fema can sleep right (laughs) (laughs) that is so interesting uh you know I, i just picture people listening to this going man i really missed out that sounds amazing (laughs) so um so I, I guess I don't, you know, I mean, that pretty much paves, tells the story right there that, that music was something that was all around you when you were younger. When did, when did you decide that the bass was the instrument and that that's a path that you wanted to pursue? Well, um, I was, we, we moved to Seattle. Well, it was a kind of a circuitous route. We, we, we went back to England for a while. Then we went to uh, Africa and I was living in Tanzania for almost a year. And then I ended up at age 12, 13 in Seattle. And for my 13th birthday, my dad and my mom decided to chip in and buy me a bass. Hmm. That, was, that was when I first kind of started, you know. And, and I, I didn't, in all honesty, I, I wasn't really aware of that much of, what, of the bass and what it, its function or the way it worked or, you know, the sound. Um, but my dad was like, if you, if you learn how to play the bass, you'll always work. So he, you know, he kind of pushed me in that direction a little bit. And, you know, it ended up being a, a good, good decision, I guess. I want to stop and, and, and really emphasize that statement right there. Because, uh, you know, different musicians will tell the story that either their parents fully encouraged them to become musicians uh, or encourage them not to become musicians for financial reasons. But here we have a a rather unique statement that encouraged the music, but specifically chose the bass as the most consistent uh, uh, employment opportunity. That's incredible. Well, I mean, you also, you also have to realize a little bit about the time period because this was pre-Jocko. This was pre, you know, this was like just the beginning of when, the bass kind of came to the forefront. So, mm. you know, after sort of, you know, there's, there was like 
pre-Jocko and post-Jocko in a way. You know? And I think after Jocko kind of you know burst on the scene, it, it became a, a very more popular instrument. You know, so can can you put put that in in time context for me for, from uh, people like because uh, you know, I grew up in the rock and roll area, and I think we were you know we were we were pretty aware of and and names are gonna I'm gonna draw blanks on names, which probably doesn't help emphasize my point. But uh, uh, John Entwistle uh, sure. from the Who and you know, McCartney, of course. Basis, right? Where, was that is that still pre-Jocko? Um, yeah, I mean, Jocko kind of, he sort of rose to uh, uh, sort of public awareness, I think. I'm going to, I'm not exactly sure, but it was somewhere around 70, I want to say 77, 78. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right. Um, you know. So in rock and roll, I guess the bass was 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 you know there were some there were a couple of basses that were emphasized, but not as much in jazz, I suppose, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing was uh, there there was you know, and before Jocko, there was Stanley, and and you know, there were other there were other guys that kind of you know stepped out with the bass, but for you know, I, I don't know, I think what Jocko was doing was was kind of so unique that, and Weather Report was such a kind of influential group that um that you know they they were playing stadiums i mean they were playing big arenas they weren't just playing clubs you know so it's definitely so 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 to take me from the arc of when you started to play bass and and maybe when you know when you realized that yeah this this was going to be a living for me and a, and a, and a passion and a- well i um so I started in Seattle and, and I kind of, you know, at that point I didn't really have much experience at, you know, playing in groups or anything. And then I ended up coming back to New York and, and attending. I somehow managed to, you know, bullshit my way into the high school of music and art because I literally didn't know anything about music. I mean, I didn't know. I tell the story. It's, it's sort of funny. Like I, I literally didn't, know the names of this of my strings i didn't know e-a-d-g <laughs> but i could play like i had i had a musical sensibility and when i auditioned i guess they 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 um they could see that i had some talent and so they let me in and then basically that was where i really kind of started to play professionally and play in bands and learn about music you know and uh, i was surrounded by kids that who were like you know best in the city and 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 uh, yep. and that really kind of pushed me to um, to grow as a musician and so that that was really where it started um, and and you know and basically I've, I've been doing it ever since ever since. You know? What do you think was 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 you know was there one gig um, that really kind of broke things open? You know? Well. I was playing in a band. I, I put together this band with some guys from from school, and you know, it, we were we were pretty serious. So like we we would rehearse every week, out and go go out to this guy's house in Brooklyn, and it was like a, a, a three piece horn section, and and I'm still friends with some of the guys from that band, and and you know, so that that was really where I started to develop my my ability to to play. And then, of course, you know, I did started doing lots of lots of gigs. The first gigs that I, I ended up doing, for strangely enough, were Latin gigs. And I, I would I was um, 
I was playing in like these little salsa bands and stuff up in East Harlem and we'd play like these after hours parties and you know it was it was kind of insane I remember playing in this band and we'd, we'd do six sets and I'd get 35 bucks for for six sets <laughs> do you remember any of the names of the bands um there was one band that was called La Maldad and I don't think they you know they weren't like any any kind of famous bands or anything like that they were just sort of like local salsa bands but uh, that, that was also a good, you know, a good learning experience for me. I can imagine. The, and then the other thing that was interesting was, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I became friends with a lot of people, you know, that were good musicians. And there was a, a club in my neighborhood where, where I lived. It was called Ali's Alley. And it was a, it was an, it was a club that was started by a, a guy named Rashid Ali, who was a drummer that played with, with Coltrane back in the day after Elvin left. Mm-hmm. He had this club and he he kind of took me under his wing a little bit. He could see I was a musician. So he would let me come into the club and 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 uh, he would let me come in for free. So I would I would always go there and hang out and you know hear music and meet musicians and you know I was exposed to some some interesting music from that place as well. Like Jackie Byard and the Apollo Stompers who I ended up playing with and all kinds of people. So yeah, there was a, you know, there was a lot of stuff happening in New York back in the, in the seventies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel like it, it's starting to happen again. I think, you know, it goes in, in waves and it seems like New York is really cooking again. Not that it ever really stopped, but yeah. but I want to yeah. point out right here in the middle that, um, you know, the list of people that, that you've played with is, is stunning from uh, Gil Scott Heron, Natalie Merchant, Michelle, Screaming Headless Torsos, Kurt Rosenwinkel, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I'd like to get a sense of is in the process of doing all that, you know, when when did you begin uh, composing and deciding that, that you wanted to put your your own music out? Well, you know, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I, I sort of learned bass in an unorthodox way. I mean, initially, so the way I would, I learned was I would just make up songs, like, you know, kind of, I didn't know what I was doing at all, but I would make up these kind of fairly elaborate kind of, you know, songs on my, on the bass. <laughs> I kind of wish that I, I had recorded them because I, I just love to hear, I have no recollection of what they, what they sounded like actually. But, but anyway, so, so um, that was sort of how I started to, to learn how to play. So it was always writing, you know, was always something that I was interested in and, um, and then, you know, a lot of the bands that I, that I played in, I would bring in tunes and, you know, some of better quality than others. And, and so, you know, it's something that I've always tried to do. And then I had an opportunity to do a record. The first record that I did was on Sadiq, which is John Zorn's label. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up, you know, I was motivated to, to do that. And I ended up, you know, putting together the material for that and rehearsing it and putting it together a band. And, you know, it came out, it came out nicely, I thought, you know, and uh, that, so that was the first kind of op- opportunity that I had to really do my own music, you know, record my own music on a, on a, on a record. Was there an expectation on Sadiq uh, of, of a certain style that you were, that you were wanting to sort of compose to? In a sense, I mean, John Zorn's powerful. He, you know, (laughs) 
he's because it's his label you know and he's sort of the arbiter of taste he he kind of would um yeah he wanted to 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 sort of reflect this what he calls like this radical jewish culture thing and to me it was a little bit of just like you know whatever it's a name you just put on something and at the bot at the bottom line at the end of the day it's just music you know so so for me i didn't really pay that much attention to that and he um you know there was a we had a couple little discussions about some of the music and i was like no man you know this is this is what it is mm -hmm. at, at the you know I, I think he was happy he was pretty happy with 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 the record so um, whatever you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and well, I, I guess I wanted to get a contrast between that and album number two, uh, Quiet City. Yeah. You know, what was do you feel there's a, a a big difference in those two in in that sense because you were able to self-release or? Um, well, not really. I mean, you know, actually, I mean, it was working doing that project with with John was was good in the sense, but that he, he it kind of forced me to try to think in terms of like a concept. I mean, I don't know if I. You know, I don't know if I necessarily um, realized it as a fully kind of, you know, thought out concept, but it, because he sort of imposed that condition on it, it did sort of make me think that way. Um, mm -hmm. And that, I think, is a good thing, ultimately. So to answer your question about the uh, Quiet City record, that, I mean, in a way, I don't hear that much of a difference in terms of the overall conceptual scope of it but maybe maybe it's possible that the soul machine record is is, is a little more focused I, I you know i don't know i can't be okay. objective about it well i think we're all gonna have to go back and dig and 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 uh think about that um <laughs> i, I want to bring up a quote from one of my uh mentors uh colonel bruce hampton uh -huh. um he said uh once uh if you're not soloing and I can hear you, you're doing it wrong. And I thought of that quote as uh, before I even heard uh, the, the new record, uh, Songs from the Tree, which is coming out in October. I had listened many, many times to uh, Nate Smith's Kinfolk record. Uh -huh. and, and I have to say that uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> and as I listen to the new record, um, you know, a lot of times pe people, when someone is such an accomplished player uh, on their particular instrument, uh, one might expect that, you know, we're getting ready to listen to a bass record, you know? Yeah. Uh, and and it's, it, to me, it's quite the contrary. Um, they're this, you know, the songs stand out and the entire band stands out. Uh, and, uh, then I have to go back and say, okay, let me, let me really listen to this again and, and listen to this bass, you know, the bass playing on this. Mm -hmm. um, I, don't, I don't know if that was a question or just, but, I, think, uh, I think, you know, the, the, the question that you're raising is an interesting one, you know, and I've, um, you know, I, I, I'm not that, interested in making like bass solo records. I'm more interested in making music records, you know? And, and there's also, I mean, in my mind, there's some sort of particular, particular issues with, with the bass 
in terms of it being a solo instrument because of the, the registers of it and stuff. So that it has to, it, for me personally, the setting has to be really right for the, for the solo to kind of, you know, for to speak right. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but, but yeah, I mean, maybe the next record I'll make will be a, a, a bass solo record. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> One of one of the robot up artists that comes to mind is Bill Dickens. To, in contrast to that, right? So I guess you know he sort of he sort of went because you know the bass is his thing, you know, and he sort of went to like all, all an almost all funk kind of vibe because mm -hmm. you know he wanted and rightfully so to show off his his you know strength on the bass and and it, and it comes across as that, you know. Yeah. But I think that uh, you know I also really appreciate that songs from the tree is just. Uh, you know, I don't really, and it's so wonderful in jazz, quite honestly, that I don't really have to think about the, the chops of, of, you know, any one of the players. I can just listen to the music uh, and, and enjoy it uh, for what it is. Um, so it, do you want to talk about the, the, the making of this record? Um, you know, there's a quote here, you know, about how it went down, but it, there's some personnel on here that are, that are wonderful names. And, and yeah, I mean... Personnel about so um i mean you know i've been fortunate enough to to play with in, <laughs> it's i mean sort of funny because i'm you know i i've toured quite a few quite you know extensively with chris potter's group underground when when uh, craig taborn kind of left the group um and then i play obviously in in kinfolk in uh, nate's band and then I also play in um, Dice, which is Adam's band, um, with, with Nate, which is a trio. And then I've also done some gigs. Well, recently I, I did a gig with Kevin with his music. So my point is just that, you know, um, I'm, I, I made this record with people that I part, – part of the reason why I chose these guys is because I play with them so much. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's a rapport there musically – based upon, you know, the, the amount of time that we've kind of worked together. And aside from the fact that they're all kind of, you know, virtuoso musicians at the, at the top of their game. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, you know, that was the reason why um, I, I kind of chose those particular players. And in terms of um, the making of it, uh, you know, I, I spent quite a, a lot of time developing the material on my own before we went into the studio. And we did a couple of gigs, like just small kind of local gigs, um, just to sort of run through the material and kind of refine it. And then I, I was kind of refining it all the way to, till we went, actually went into the studio, making little changes here, you know, kind of editing or adding sections and just kind of like, you know, trying to improve it to the, to the last minute. And then, you know, once we recorded it, and I, when I got it home, I ended up spending quite a quite a bit of time just editing things, like you know, editing some take different takes together, um, doing overdubs, fixing you know little mistakes here and there, stuff like that. So, and then I mixed it, you know, myself as well. So, it was it it was a for me, you know, I've never worked that hard on any particular project before. So it was a it was a good good experience for me. You know, hopefully I've I've grown from that and you know learned a lot because there's a lot to learn. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. It's do do you feel um, 
Do you listen to it? The, the record? Now that it's finished, yeah. Sometimes people say, you know, now I'm done with it. Well, I um, I mean, I haven't, I mean, I've listened to it so much yeah. that, you know, <laughs> I, I sometimes, I feel like I do need a little bit of a, a break from it. But every time I do listen to it, I, I come away feeling, you know, despite whatever kind of, you know, critical thinking or um, whatever, you know, that goes on in my mind, I, I, I feel like it's a strong piece of work. So I can feel proud of it from that perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, there are things about it that I, I would have liked to maybe have the opportunity to do. But, you know, at the end of the day, it is what it is, you know. And um, I, need, I, I just, I'm ready, you know, I'm ready to, for it to come out and for people to hear it, you know, at this point. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating to me. I, I uh, you know, that, that, that process of putting down a recording and having that recording last forever in a given state and the process that uh, of, of picking the letting go point. <laughs> yeah. It's gotta be a really, really serious challenge. Uh, I would think. Uh, it's hard to be objective, especially when you, when you've been listening to stuff as much, you know, like thousands, you know, no exaggeration, probably thousands of times, you know, you start to fixate on certain things or, or you, you know, and some, and what I've found is that, some some of the things that you fixate on, like I've had this experience where where I've been totally obsessed with some some a, a note or a rhythm or a melody or whatever, and and thought ah oh, this is like you know total total crap or whatever, and you you just put it away, and then you know you come back to it a month or two months later, and you listen to it, and you're like well why did I think that was so bad? I don't understand. You know? Right. So there's a lot of it, you know, to some, to some extent, you know, it's hard to be objective about your own music. Well, not, but just, but even if it were not your own music, but after a certain time, uh, you know, dissecting and being inside something, having an outside perspective is, you know, very, very difficult. Um, which is why I asked if you, if you listen to it now. Um, so I, you know, this, I want to ask you one last question uh, about the title and, and the track titles, because it's of interest to me. Uh, songs from the tree and I see uh, various uh, titles that either seem to represent uh, some uh, a Buddhist perspective uh, but also some direct references like uh, arboreal and uh, bamboo uh, <laughs> any particular uh, well, uh, message you want to or statement you want to make about that or do you want to just leave that no I mean you know some of it was sort of somewhat random like i i i actually um the, the tune arboreal i i called it that before i had it and and the same with bamboo i i i wasn't i didn't have the title in my mind of the record when i named those tunes so that was a little bit of sort of a coincidence i guess um but in terms of the title i, I think the, the kind of message that i'm trying to or the thing that i was thinking about in regards to the title was just that you know, when I say tree, I'm not, it's not necessarily literal, a literal tree. It's, it, it could also be interpreted as the tree of life, like just, you know, mm-hmm. and how all these people and musicians that I played with and the music that I listened to, you know, have all kind of influenced me as a musician and as a human being. And in a way, you know, the music that I'm playing and writing 
is um, a result of all of those influences to some extent, you know, and I, I guess I just wanted to kind of um, express that connection somehow, if that makes any sense. It makes perfect sense to me. I sometimes self-proclaim as a druid and I spend a lot of time meditating on the specific process that trees, uh, and there, there are a couple of great books where they're learning about um, the intelligent networks uh, that trees have and the, the process of transforming earth into uh, this, this, this thing. Um, and there's also a, uh, a compatibility thing with oxygen and carbon dioxide that I sit and ponder sometimes about this in a reaction where we're, where we're, we're dependent as humans, as beings codependent with the trees. So maybe that doesn't make any sense, but <laughs> so I, I think that, you know, maybe if I'm interpreting what you're saying, some extent is that it seems that, you know, maybe what you're implying is that everything is interconnected. There's this interconnected web of, of life that exists on earth. And uh, as human beings, we're, we're, we're part of that. Although it does seem like we've kind of, you know, to some extent interrupted some of those, uh, those interconnections. So I don't know. Yeah. And yet, and yet it still exists. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we, we can't, we can't, you know, when, when fully interrupted, that would be the end. So it's still there. So, yeah, that's uh, well, Fima, thank you so much. First, first off for uh, doing what you do and for making great music and for bringing us this wonderful album. Uh, Songs from the tree is set for release on October 26 on modern icon recordings through the rope dope uh, family and ecosystem, if you will uh, throw that back in there and uh, just, just thank you. Thank you. I appreciate uh, all your support. It's, it's, it's great. Well, that's our show for the week. Thanks for listening to the station tapes. If you like what we do, please subscribe on Mixcloud at 21 Soul. And you can also find us on Stitcher, Apple, and Spotify. Our 21 Soul video series features in-person interviews, music discussion, and live performances. And you can find that on YouTube at Ropeadope99. Big thanks to our producer, Nick Perry. Our general manager is Fran DeRubo. The Station Tapes theme song is from Red Hook Soul by Michael Blake. And big thanks to all the people who keep the flame burning, to all the musicians who pour their creativity into the world, and thanks to those of you who are taking the time to listen. We hope you enjoy the show. Music